Psalm 98 says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. Let me turn this one off. Leave this one on. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together. Before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth, he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. It's refreshing to gather outside uh, here. As I wrote, if you read the letter I wrote a few days ago, church history is filled with Christians gathering outdoors. In fact, you probably know that church buildings did not even come into existence until about 200 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And of course, his ministry of teaching and preaching primarily occurred outdoors. The New Testament mentions Paul and others assembling with believers out of doors. And Scottish Presbyterians held huge outdoor communion gatherings. Wesley and Whitfield preached outdoors. Uh, someone said to me before, said, you know, you could roll your sleeves up. I mean, it is kind of hot. And I, I said, look, when George Whitfield came to New England and in July preached with a wool robe on over a suit, <laughs> and he would preach for two to three hours, which I have no intention of doing right now, I thought the least I can do is, <laughs> is have a white shirt on with the sleeves down. So we decided to meet outdoors today rather than inside uh, because we wanted to sing. And uh, singing indoors right now, we're told, is not wise. So this is a fitting psalm for us, Psalm 98. The opening command is a simple song. The opening command is sing to the Lord a new song. And why sing? He tells us. He says, the Lord has done marvelous things. He has given us salvation. Now, the salvation of which the psalmist was writing primarily was referring back to when God had delivered his people from slavery after 400 years in Egypt. So it was a literal salvation of being freed from slavery. It said he did this by his mighty arm, his righteous right hand, which emphasizes like a soldier that, that uses their right, his right hand, it emphasizes it was God who did it. It was not the Israelites who delivered themselves, but God was the one who delivered them. And he acted alone. And he did not do this often in some corner of the world. He did it, it says in verse 2, in the sight of the nations. And this was prophetic, speaking of the New Testament, when the Messiah would come and God would reveal his deliverance to the nations. But what kind of deliverance do we have? We're, we're told in the New Testament that that God delivers us, not from a, a literal slavery like the Jews had experienced in Egypt, but deliverance from sin. Our greatest problem, the Bible says, is not our bank account, it's not even our health, it's not even a conflict with others or, or whatever, whatever we can think of. Our, our greatest problem, the Bible says, is sin. 
because it is the enemy. And sin separates us from God. Romans 8 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. So it's a deliverance from sin, also it's a deliverance from death. That because of Christ's victory, we can know that when we die, we will be with Jesus. For to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And then the psalmist says in verse 2 that God has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness to the nations. God's purpose then and now is that all the world might know him. Not done in secret. I mean, if you think about the, the history of redemption going back to the Jewish people... God did that in what was the ancient crossroads of society. There on the eastern side of the Mediterranean, which was a, a, a highway, you might say, uh, coming from the north and the south and east and west, all met at that place in the world. He could have put his people in some corner of Australia or some far-off place where no one else would know, and yet he chose to put them on spectacle, you might say, for all the nations to know of his work. In verse 3, when it says, All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. We know when this was written, that was not true. Everyone had not heard. So these are prophetic words. The writer's looking ahead. He's looking ahead at what God would do. Going back to when, in Genesis, where God calls to himself a man named Abram. And he tells Abram that, through him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. He didn't mean just through Abram himself. He meant through his descendants. And then hundreds of years later, <coughs> King David is king over Israel. And God tells him in 2 Samuel, your throne will be established forever. Well, there's no human throne that's established forever. They all pass. So what did he mean? It was a prophetic word about the future descendant of David who would be the Messiah, Jesus. So when Isaiah the prophet said that a virgin would bear a son and he'd be called Wonderful Counselor, it was Jesus of whom it was speaking. So Jesus tells his followers to go and make disciples of all nations. This is the salvation of which the uh, psalmist uh, speaks here in Psalm 98. It's the salvation brought by Christ. So our goal as a, as a church, a local church, has been and will be and should be to reach the world with the gospel and to play a part where we can with the time that we have. The book of Acts mentions a particular character and well, mentions David, and it said he served God in his generation. You are not responsible for serving God in a previous generation or in a future generation. We are responsible for right now to use the means that, that we have uh, to further the kingdom of God through evangelism and discipleship. Verses 4 to 6 is the second part. And it says we're to praise God as our king. To say God is king is to speak of his sovereignty. It's, it's a royal term. And the Bible teaches that God is king, that he's a supreme ruler, that he's a lawgiver over the entire universe, that he's working all things after the counsel of his own will, that he's causing all things to work together for good to those who love him, that not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from his knowledge, 
that he upholds and governs the created world in his providence, that he rules the destinies of men and nations. So a grasp of this truth of the sovereignty of God enables us to praise God and to worship him. Now, when we turn to the Bible and we find passages that teach a lot about the sovereignty of God, such as Romans 8, the context inevitably is people who are suffering. You would think that's when we don't want to hear about it, but that's when we do want to hear about it. Does God know what I'm going through? Does God care? Does God, is God in control of this? Or is this beyond God's power to do anything about? So we find, like in Romans 8, Paul is writing to those Christians in Rome who were suffering. They were suffering persecution. And he emphasizes the sovereignty of God. Christians have always wrestled with this in difficult circumstances. And so we have the opportunity now in times of uncertainty. Suffering is always relative. <coughs> Pardon me. I had a man call me the other day, and he, he's been working uh, on an insurance claim. He has a roof. He lives in Florida. He's got a tile roof. And there was a hail damage to his roof. I don't think he'd mind me telling you this. And uh, it's very expensive to repair that. And he's he basically been in a three-year fight with an insurance company. And he called me and said, I am so mad. I am so mad. And we were talking. And then at the end, he, he said, I said, well, let me pray for you. So I prayed on the phone. And then he said, well, let me pray for you. <clears throat> and he prayed and he said, um, Father, I pray for Chip. He must think all other problems are insignificant compared to having a disabled son. And he went on and on and prayed. And, and when we got on the phone, I said, "How? I, I, I did, that was not the time, but I, I want to I call him back and say, you, you, no, pain is pain. It, you, you are not given comfort if, you, if, if, a big, if a hammer hits your big toe and you're in agony. If you see someone else and a hammer's hit both their big toes, that doesn't make you feel better. Knowing someone else's pain is different or maybe more severe or whatever does not help, does not comfort anyone. Uh, so to compare notes with anyone uh, to say, well, they've been through so much more or look what they're going through, no one really draws comfort from that. That doesn't help you or me. So when we talk about suffering at the present time, we just prayed for our Christian sister whose dad has died. Uh, some others, the form of suffering is, well, I'm tired of watching the same movies on Netflix. Yeah, I mean, it, so I use that term very loosely. So it's a time of uncertainty. But now let me get to the point, the sovereignty of God. I was listening to a, a Ligonier broadcast the other night with Derek Thomas, Sinclair Ferguson, Stephen Lawson, Stephen Nichols, and others. They were talking about comfort in crisis. And these are pastor, teachers, scholars, all very reformed in their thinking. And Stephen Nichols referred to how when, when the interviewer said, is this unprecedented for Christians to go through something like this worldwide? <clears throat> he said, no, not at all. And he began to go through history to tell about things that have happened, and he mentioned these two characters I want to tell you about. We go back to the Roman Empire, 
to the year roughly 400. And there are two characters or two chief figures in church history from that time. There's Augustine, if you're from Florida, or Augustine. He was a bishop in North Africa. And then there's Jerome. Jerome was a secretary to the Pope. He was a scholar. He was a writer. He published the Latin version of the Bible, which is called the Vulgate. Jerome lived in a monastery near Bethlehem. And if you know history, Roman history, you know that the city of Rome, the Roman Empire, had been attacked for centuries uh, through various, uh, various groups coming in to attack the empire. And it was in great disarray by the year 400. But something happened in 400 that changed everything, and that was on August 29th, I believe it was, or August 24th, one particular night, an invading army came into the city of Rome and ransacked it for three days. That had never happened in 800 years. Then they left. The actual damage to the empire was minimal, but the psychological damage was huge, kind of like 9-11 for America. The psychological damage changed everything. Now, these, here's how these two Christians reacted. Jerome was just uh, heartbroken. And he thought there cannot be a furtherance, there cannot be a kingdom of God on earth without the city of Rome. In fact, here's one of the sentences he said. He wept and said, the city which has taken the whole world is itself taken. Jerome basically, after that happened, he gave up. He goes off and lives in a cave and eventually dies. Now, Augustine... He sees the same thing that's happened, and out of that suffering, he writes the city of God. And if you know that th that book, in a sense, is still a bestseller today, the premise of the book is this, that within the city, at Rome in that case, there are two cities intertwined. There's the city of God, which are true Christians living for the kingdom of God by God's laws and values, and then there's the city of man which was pagan society and basically very materialistic and so forth. And he says that Christians live in both. But when the city of man was, was ransacked, it doesn't affect those who are, even though we suffer, we still have an eternal destiny as part of the city of God. So there we have two characters. One fa they face the same situation. One's faith basically becomes disillusioned and gives up. We have another one who sees clearly through it and produces a work that still benefits Christians today. So in response to this, what does the psalmist say to do? He says in verse 4, burst into jubilant song with music as we see God ruling over us as our king. One of the best ways to celebrate with the Lord is through singing. And we sing songs because we, we, we understand, we read the words now. When I started walking with Christ, when I became a believer in high school, I would be with Christian friends like Randy Pope and others, or, and we would be riding in the car, and they would start singing hymns, what had seemed incredibly uh, uncool. Suddenly had meaning because words had application. And we would be riding down the highway and, and singing these hymns of the faith. Uh, so that, because now they had personal meaning. I saw Paul McCartney interviewed years ago, and the interviewer asked him, uh, Paul McCartney, ask, ask your parents who that is, but ask your grandparents who that is. 
anyway, they asked him, what are your favorite songs? Here was the number one pop music seller in the world at that time. And they said, what, do you have any favorites among all the hundreds of songs you've written? He said, my favorite songs are the ones that I wrote about my late wife, Linda, you know, that had died after a disease for so many years. And he said, the songs I wrote about her, those are the ones, those are my favorite." Well, that's in a sense like hymns. We sing to God because they have personal meaning for us. How are we to do this? He says in verse 4, let the whole earth hear. We're to be extensive and enthusiastically sing with joy, shout with joy. Do you know that the, the, the temple, we know all about the temple in the Old Testament and the Holy of Holies and so forth, but the noise that came from the temple was legendary. It wasn't quiet. It was loud. In Ezra chapter 3, it describes how the sound of the instruments and the shouts of the people were said to be heard far away. The Methodists of old were noted for their hearty singing of God's praises. And maybe they did that because Wesley exhorted them, sing heartily and with good courage. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or asleep, but lift up your voice with strength. Now, one reason they had to sing with courage is because they would be in gatherings where others would hear them and taunt them. We don't face that here, but what if the streets were filled with people going about? What if this was a weekday? Would we sing with courage, as he said? Is our worship enthusiastic? Is it offered with dull voices and dull hearts? Last of all, he says, we're to praise God as our judge in verses 7 through 9. In the final stanza of the psalm, He calls upon the entire creation to praise God. To do so because God is coming, he says, to judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. The Bible tells us that all of history is leading up to an amazing event. And it's not the reopening of NCAA football. It's not that. It is the amazing event that is the return of Jesus Christ on the earth. All of history is moving in that direction. Everything else you and I know the next 18 months, 24 months, and even beyond, is uncertain right now. We can make our best guesses, but they are only guesses. But there is a certainty, and that is the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. The Bible tells us it will be a day when the ills of this suffering world will be set right. Injustice will be over. Oppression, temptation, sin, hatred, strife, coveting, stealing, murdering, lying... All will be no more. The redeemed in heaven will sing the song of Moses. It tells us in Revelation 15, they will confess, Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Are you ready for his return? Do you know him today as your Savior and as your King? It was 98 years ago that Howard Carter entered the tomb of King Tut. And you know the story and how many chambers there were. And when they finally got to the burial chamber, that was one of the few that had not been robbed through the centuries. And there they found the mummified body of King Tutankhamun. And they found that it was inside of of three coffins. And the outside coffin was made of wood. The next coffin was made of wood, but the innermost coffin that held the mummified body was solid gold. I want to tell you when you die what you want to be in. 
It's not three coffins. You want to be in Jesus Christ. You want to be in Jesus Christ. The condition of your soul is of supreme importance. Romans 10 puts it so simply. We've heard it hundreds of times before. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you that you are worthy of praise because you are our king, and you rule over our lives and over the details of our lives. We pray especially at this time that perhaps truths that we've known or said we believed in now are tested. Help us to trust you and to follow you. We thank you for your sovereign care over our lives. We look forward to that day when Christ comes again. And until that time, may we help to usher in the kingdom by making disciples of all nations, beginning with our own families, and then to our circles of influence, and also to those cross-culturally. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.